Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Hello and welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for the first week of September. I'm your host, Jennifer Craig. On this week's edition, we're focused on some important issues for Arkansas ranchers. Pasture management, potential drinking water dangers for cattle, and the impact of a major fire at the nation's largest beef processing plant in Kansas. First up, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Ken Moore talks to Dr. David Fernandez, an extension livestock specialist at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, about potential drinking water problems that can impact cattle. He talks about some causes of livestock illness and what ranchers should look for if their cattle have ingested contaminated water. I'm Ken Moore, and on this edition of AgCast, I'm speaking today with David Fernandez. David uh, is Interim Assistant Dean for Academic Programs and is an Extension Livestock Specialist at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. And, uh, and David, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time today to talk about this topic of uh, the potential harmful effects of uh, pond and drinking water for livestock. Uh, we all know that uh, this could be a problem as a result of the excessive rainfall and the Arkansas River flooding that uh, we experienced here in the state earlier this year. An article was written and posted on your website about the potential threat of what is known as toxic blue-green algae. Now, we're all familiar with algae. We kind of, you know, if you go to a pond, uh, you see a, a body of rather stagnant water, if you will. You kind of realize that that's what's on top of that body of water. But from your perspective and your knowledge, David, please explain what toxic blue-green algae is and why uh, it could potentially be harmful to livestock. Well, sure, Ken. Uh, toxic blue-green algae isn't what you're typically thinking about where you've got something f sitting on the top of the water and it looks like uh, little tiny plant leaves or something. That's duckweed, and that's pretty harmless stuff. What we're talking about when we talk about toxic uh, algae is really what's called a cyanobacterium. It's an ancient group of organisms that have been around for you know hundreds of thousands of years. And they produce, well, only a few of them. There are about 1,500 species of them, and only about 50 of those species will produce a toxin. So those are the ones we get concerned about. And how is that potentially harmful to cattle? I mean, if you go on a, any type of ranch or uh, cattle operation, you know that they have ponds for cattle to uh, cool off in in the heat of the summer. They need a source of drinking water. Uh, and they, so is there a chance that they could potentially be exposed to these toxins? Well, yes, they can be exposed to the toxins, and typically this happens when we see a bloom, when conditions are really good. So when we have uh, a period of rainfall that washes nutrients into the water, and then we have those hot summer days that we have here in Arkansas where we get a lot of sunlight between the increase in the nutrients in the pond and the amount of sunlight that's hitting that pond, uh, especially as the water's warm when it gets to be 75 degrees or warmer, those algae really have an opportunity to take off and grow rapidly. And when they do that, then they start producing that toxin, which can be in the water. The nice thing about cattle is they're so big that it takes an awful lot of it to affect them. And so we don't see a lot of reports uh, of cattle being affected by this toxin, although we do see reports of it occurring worldwide. It's not something that's just limited to certain areas. We do see it all over the world. It does happen from time to time, but it is fairly rare. Well, that's good to know. We're glad that it is rare, but uh, it is of some potential concern. Now, how frequent uh, 
are the occurrences of this? You just said it's fairly rare, but uh, of cattle becoming ill or even dying from ingesting this toxic algae. And, and in that vein, what should cattle producers look for to uh, see if their cattle have been exposed or, or ingested some of this? Right. Well, you know, part of the reason maybe that we think of it as rare is that the symptoms are, there, there are two kinds of toxins that are produced. One affects the nerves and the other one affects the liver. And so the symptoms are, are fairly common with a lot of other toxins. And you might not always be able to figure out that it was about drinking water versus maybe a toxic weed during a drought period or perhaps some other diseases that can affect animals in that way. But what you'll see in cattle in particular are things like they'll be off feed, they'll stop eating. Uh, they may have some skin irritations. They may be scratching at themselves a lot, or they may develop a rash. Uh, there will be some weakness and staggering. If they've gotten a really uh, powerful dose, then you, know, you can see convulsions, uh, abortions, and even death, uh, of course. You know, you see some dead animals. I read uh, in an article, another article, where there are uh, four contaminants or disease organisms that producers should watch for, and I think you explain what those are. Can you repeat those for us? Well, the things that I'm most concerned about when it comes to something like uh, algae and then drinking water in particular, uh, for the algae, it's phosphorus and nitrogen. Those two things wash off of, of our pastures, and uh, they're, they're particularly high in, in manure or if you've fertilized recently, and then we get a dry period and then suddenly a heavy rain, that can wind up in your drinking water. Uh, and then also uh, you'll find things like, uh, you know, for the, from the flooding standpoint, sometimes we wind up with uh, high numbers of E. coli or salmonella uh, and, and then also uh, parasites like uh, nematodes and flukes. Those are the kinds of things that I typically worry about when it comes to drinking water. Let's talk again a little bit more about the uh, impacts of the Arkansas River flood earlier this summer. It flooded thousands of acres of crop and pasture back in May and June, as we know. And it deposited large amounts of debris and also some contaminants on pasture and grazing land. Uh, what threat has this posed to potential threats, I should say, potential threats posed to livestock? Yeah, I, I think at this point we're probably going to be past a lot of, of those kinds of things. But, you know, particularly uh, things might have washed into your ponds. and you might. So we had some, some uh, uh, sewage facilities that were damaged. And so you're looking at things like uh, E. coli or salmonella. Uh, possibly leptospirosis or campylobacteria. Those are the kinds of bacterial and uh, things that I would be concerned about. Uh, I'd also be worried a little bit about uh, coccidia because those in particular are fecal contaminant, and uh, when they wind up in the water, they can be a problem, <clears throat> as well as uh, cryptosporidia. And a lot of times when, when, you, when that happens, when you get that contamination in the water, it's not the older animals you have to worry about so much. It's the younger animals. Uh, because they'll often get scours. They'll get really bad diarrhea, and uh, they can die of dehydration fairly quickly. The other thing that I get concerned about, and I mentioned them just a moment ago, when we talk about water and being wet, are, are nematodes, which are uh, roundworms, a, a very simple type of worm, but they're often an intestinal parasite, and then also liver flukes. Uh, liver flukes like to be near water. They uh, are, are found, <clears throat> excuse me, they have a, a two-cycle uh, life cycle where they have to live in a snail first. And then what happens is as the cows are grazing, they consume the snail uh, as they're just eating the grass. The snails are on the grass, and then the, the fluke also goes in with the snail and winds up in the animal. And so those are the kinds of things that I would be probably most concerned about in that regard. As with humans, healthful drinking water is said to be the most important nutrient required by livestock. We all have to drink. We all have to have a certain amount of water. 
Discuss how ranchers may provide their livestock with a safe water supply and protect them from these harmful toxins and contaminants. So I guess probably the best solution that I could recommend to you is to have your animals drinking out of a tank so that they're drinking out of something that's elevated. They're not getting runoff from the pasture or uh, runoff from floodwaters that's contaminating that that tank. And the tank is easier enough to clean out in the event that it is contaminated. Uh, You can always decontaminate a tank. And that way, they're not getting any of those kinds of things, and it helps to reduce the parasite burden as well. But if you don't have the... And and you can pull water directly out of a creek or whatnot. There are a variety of ways to get that into a tank so that they're not drinking out of something that they might be standing in. Uh, A filter strip along a creek bed or along a pond or along a riverbank, that's also very helpful. You want to have an area of grassy uh, plant material that's going to soak up those nutrients before they get a chance to get into the water. So if you can have you know, a six or eight foot buffer of plant material on either side of, of your uh, water, that's very helpful. And NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, has actually a program that will help you to install uh, some of these kinds of, of uh, preventative me- measures. And then probably the other thing that's really important is to fence the animals out of the water. Uh, we want to keep them from loafing in it, standing in it, Uh, defecating in it, you know, the water's for drinking. If they need to cool off, they need to go over and lie down in some shade that should be nearby. But we don't want them in the water because when they defecate in the water, when they urinate in the water, they're putting those contaminants directly in the water. They're feeding those bacteria. They're putting parasites directly into the water where they're going to be more successful. So we want to fence the animals out. It's only for drinking. It's not for bathing. All right, good advice. Very, very good advice. And this this is all information that many cattle producers and livestock producers should already be aware of, but uh, just doesn't hurt to remind us all about some of these steps that can be taken. Uh, Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't uh, touched on so far? Well, I think I would say that when in doubt, test. You know, if you have any concern, if you're concerned that your water might have been contaminated, and you're not sure what to do, go ahead and get the water tested. And there are a variety of labs around the state. You can bring a sample in to your extension agent, and your extension agent can help you with that. In fact, they can probably tell you a lot about how they would like to have that water sampled just in case because, you know, you might want to dip down a little bit lower or get a little bit closer to the center of your water rather than right out toward the edge of the bank. And remember that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you can keep those animals out of the water, if you can keep them up in a tank rather than down on the ground drinking off of the ground, that's going to be much better, and you're going to have a lot more success with keeping your animals disease and parasite-free. Well, thank you so much, David. We've been speaking with Dr. David Fernandez. He is, again, the Interim Assistant Dean for Academic Programs and uh, an Extension Livestock Specialist at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. David, thank you so much for visiting with us today. You bet, Ken. It was my pleasure. Next up, we have two interviews by Greg Patterson on topic of pasture management. First, he spoke to Jason Davis, an application technologist with the UA Extension Service, about his advice for livestock producers on pasture maintenance, spraying, and spraying equipment. All right, this is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're talking with Jason Davis. Jason works with uh, UA Division of Agriculture with the Research and Extension Service. And he's an instructor and application technologist dealing with equipment that's used for herbicides, pesticides, things of that nature. Jason, um, we're we're here at 
the stored forage workshop today and you just gave a demonstration to a bunch of ranchers in regards to their pastures um in your travels i mean what what do you come up most having to deal with when you're talking with ranchers in regards to their pastures and and trying to maintain real good grass yeah you know a lot of that has to do with with uh, a few common common issues and that really starts with at the local level with some of our county extension agents uh the 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 primary one is that they get a really good recommendation from our county extension agents on the timing of application and what weeds they're targeting out in the field and so you know if you're looking out like right now i'm looking out across the pasture and i'm seeing a lot of yellow buttercup and so if a if a producer's uh, dealing with one specific weed or a certain group of weeds, they need to talk to their county extension agent and get that weed identified. And then next, they get a really good recommendation on what type of chemistry they need to be applying. The next stage of that, uh, and also in addition to that, is when they need to be applying. So the timing of that application, the type of chemistry, and the target are all the, the foundation of those applications. Where I come in is trying to get that chemical out at the appropriate ratios uh, and the appropriate amount of coverage. And so that kind of plays into the, the equipment side. So you're into the efficiency of the use yes, of that chemical. Yes, absolutely. And so that's, that's kind of what I deal with is uh, what kind of sprayer do you have? What uh, requirements as far as coverage with this chemistry and this weed uh, are at play? And then, uh, and then trying to get them calibrated so that that chemical can go out, you know, however many dollars per acre they're spending on it, that we can get as much bang for their buck out of it. How important is it, um, and, and do you run into situations where a lot of times you'll come up to help out a rancher or, or someone with their pasture and you realize, oh my gosh, they're just spraying money all over the place? Yeah, so we run into some several issues, particularly in Arkansas pastures that's, that's related to the boomless uh, nozzle setups, the cluster nozzles. Um, a lot of times when you get those sprayers, they're set up uh, with, and you'll get a little sheet with them that'll say, this nozzle at this pressure is supposed to be spraying X amount of feet wide. And that's usually, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30% wider than you're actually seeing in most of our pastures. And so if a producer were to take that number uh, and assume that it's accurate, what you'll end up with is a lot of streaking in the field. And so uh, we try, with our county extension agents, we try to get those numbers more realistic. And so uh, even though a sprayer may be putting out uh, a 30 or 36 feet wide spray swath, backing that off to 25 or 28 uh, is going to be a lot more efficient in the field and prevent that streaking from happening. So that's probably so, the number one issue that I see out there. Right. And so mm. you define streaking as that, that strip or stripe or streak right. of, of weed that's still out there. Right. So you'll have uh, stripes of very efficient application where the weed, in this case, you know, if, if you're talking buttercup, you'll see a, a nice green strip and then you'll see these uh, other strips of bright yellow buttercups in that, in that example. And so... Um, tell us some more about some of the issues that you run into, and you can you can bring it up to right now. We are in early May. We've had a tremendous amount of precipitation through the winter and into the spring. And what are the big issues you're dealing with right now? Well, you know, if you go back to the, the foundation of that application is getting the right chemistry at the right time. And the timing issue is, is really a challenge this time of year, particularly this year, because a lot of our pastures, you just can't get into them. Uh, and so the, the producers trying to do the best they can to get out and, and knock those weeds out. And they just can't do it because they can't get their, field, their sprayer across the field. Uh, and so that's kind of thrown a wrench into a lot of our applications this time of year across the state, pastures and, and not. 
So what happens to um, the real-life day-to-day with a producer now who realizes that the weeds are actually getting a, a big head start? Because he can't even get his equipment out there to deal with it. Right. You know, and some of that will go back to maybe a different chemical recommendation that may be a post-application that's a little bit more expensive, uh, maybe even used at a higher at a higher labeled rate. Uh, and so the, the earlier you can catch those weeds and the timing of that, the more economical and the more efficient you can be, the later you're trying to play catch-up, it generally becomes more expensive, if not a, a, a loss as far as weed control in some situations, which is unfortunate. Okay, so our listeners to this right now can't see what we're seeing, but we have really a beautiful shot in front of us <laughs> of a of a gorgeous pasture. Uh-huh. We're here in early May. What are some of the specific weeds that, as you look in front of you, you're going? We mentioned buttercup. What else is out there? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of a lot of your uh, spring uh, weeds that are coming up that that. Uh, that most of the time some of your systemic chemistries can handle like we so we use the buttercup as an example a lot of those broadleaf weeds can be in our pastures can be knocked out with the shot of 2,4-D and again get that chemical recommendation from your from your county extension service but 2,4-D will, will go a long ways on a lot of these to take care of of a broad spectrum of broadleaf weeds uh, and and maintain that pasture forage. Final question or comment for you um, I've been told that Arkansas is a great grass growing state. So it, it's really helps our, our producers with the uh, available forage that they can have. In summation, what are the best things that a producer can do on a year round basis to make sure they get the best grass they possibly can? Yeah, so it, it's kind of twofold. It's your, 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 you're playing offense and defense. Offense would be trying to make sure that those pastures have the appropriate nutrient management. So uh, fertilizer applications are going to be critical to that. Getting good soil testing, which is free, by the way, through the County Extension Service. Uh, and so that way you know that you can uh, accurately apply the right amount of pesticides uh, and get good lime recommendations. So that would be your your uh, your offense. And then your defense uh, against those weeds. And so that would be the appropriate timing of, of, of those applications with a good chemistry and applying that with a calibrated sprayer that puts out a uniform application so that you get good, good clean pastures knocking out, knocking out those weeds. On this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we have been talking with Jason Davis with the University of Arkansas's Division of Agriculture Extension Service. And Jason, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Now Greg talks to Johnson County UA Division of Agriculture Extension Agent Blair Griffin about pasture pest weeds and how producers can recover pastures damaged by this year's flooding. We're talking with Blair Griffin. He's a county extension agent for Johnson County with the University of Arkansas's Division of Agriculture. And we're going to talk about uh, the uh, forage base out there and pasture land and, and what kind of things do producers need to be paying attention to as we're moving from the summer months into the fall, Blair? First off, our big concern this time of year, as always, is fall armyworms. Um, You know, we've had an abundance of moisture all summer long and a good hay crop. And if you, especially in the river valley, if you look at our pastures and hay fields, we've got plenty of grass out there. So everyone feels real good. But the truth is, you know, a heavy influx of armyworms could basically knock all that out overnight and, and we'd be feeding hay in three weeks so you know as always we encourage people to keep an eye on your fields to get out there and scout them 
You know, army worms typically show up in the same fields, the same place, you know, when they make their flights. So uh, get out there and scout. Um, the other thing is, you know, we have a lot of people that either drill winter forages like ryegrass, wheat, um, rye, clovers, things like that, or they have an inherent stand of ryegrass that comes back every year. And, you know, with the, the, the thick cover of grass that we have out there and, and our pastures and hay fields in real good shape, that tends to shade out the ground and compete with our winter grasses. So if you're counting on that ryegrass to come up naturally, well, if you've got a heavy cover, it's not going to break through that, that, that cover. Or if you drill ryegrass, wheat, rye, it's not going to emerge through that heavy cover. So if that's your game plan, then get out and, and, and move your cattle into those fields and graze it down, you know, to a short level, which is what its normal state is this time of year, and, and it will get out to give it a chance to emerge, and then you'll have some winter grazing. What are some of the other uh, pests? You mentioned army worms, but some of the other ones that you're seeing in as, as you move around uh, – uh, over there in the west central part of of the state well one thing we've seen this year for the first time um on a pretty wide scale is is bermuda grass stem maggots they showed up in the southern part of the state in 2013 down around southwest arkansas and uh, we've had sporadic you know sightings of them the last couple of years but this year they're uh, been found a lot in Logan County, Franklin County, and in Johnson County. They they only affect Bermuda grass. Thankfully, they don't kill it or eat it to the ground, but they do cut your yields. And and once again, producers need to get out and scout them, and um, you know spray if needed. Uh, the other thing we're seeing is is you know we control problems that are a little different this year with the rainfall. Um, you know, we're seeing some weeds that we typically see in rice fields like smart weed, nut sedge, barnyard signal grass. Uh, I mean, barnyard grass and broadleaf signal grass, you know, and these are weeds you find in rice fields, and they're in our hay meadows and pastures this year. And producers aren't used to dealing with them, and, and a lot of our, our herbicides aren't as effective on them, or they're very weed-specific, so we don't get that broad-spectrum control that we usually see. Well, in, in talking about weed control, uh, on my end of the phone here, I'm looking at a great publication right now that the University of Arkansas's Division of Agriculture, the Extension guys, put out, and it's called Pasture Weed Control in Arkansas, and it's got all these color plates and descriptions of, of the various weeds that uh, folks can encounter in their pastures and then even give some good information about how to treat that. But this sucker is thirty pages long. There's a bunch of weeds out there. What are you What are you seeing out there right now that you guys are having to do battle with? Um, well, you know, because of the moisture, you know, normally early in the year we battle rye, I mean not rye, ragweed, uh, horse nettle, woolly croton, uh, pigweed. Um, you know that that's our standard our standard weed, but this year because of the rainfall, we've got perilla mint, which is typically in the shady areas. It's toxic to cattle. It's we're seeing it out in the fields. We're also seeing our second and third flushes of 
pigweed and ragweed and woolly croton. Um, so, you know, normally folks are done spraying now, but this year, you know, they're calling. I've encouraged them to go ahead and spray with good moisture. Our pastures are growing. You know, we've got another 45 days of grazing out there. Um, blackberries and horse nettle, perennial weeds that come back from the roots every year, you can spray now. Get rid of them this year and maybe have less of a problem next year. And once again, most years I would never recommend spraying because we're usually dry and, and we don't get, get good weed control with our herbicide applications. You mentioned uh, doing some cleanup, and as you well know from your travels, the, uh, the flooding was tremendous this year in many areas, whether it was from the river itself or from significant rainfall. Um, what are you seeing out there uh, as far as debris or weeds or stuff that are that is on pasture land that, that uh, our uh, ranchers need to pay attention to uh, as we move into the fall season? Well, the flooding obviously brought you know, like I said, debris, limbs, and, you know, even equipment and equipment-type junk moved across fields. But the the biggest thing that, that's even, you know, I mean, I have a lot of experience in weed control and working with weeds, but I'm, I'm just amazed that I've been in fields that were, you know, basically a Bermuda grass pasture that is now 100% broadleaf signal grass, and the farmer, you know, basically said, I've never seen this weed before, and now he's got a 100% stand of it. And and signal grass is, a, you know, very poor quality forage. It's difficult to control. And in addition to that, armyworms seem to love it. So it, if you've got it in your field, it attracts armyworms, which gets them started in your pasture. And once they eat all the, all the signal grass, they move on to your other grasses. So... We're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of nut sedge that we normally wouldn't see. Nut sedge extremely hard to control. It's expensive to control. And, um, you know, a lot of times I, I don't jokingly say it, but I tell producers, you know, wait till next year and we'll probably have our typical six to eight weeks of hot, dry weather in June and July, and it'll solve a lot of the problems with, with some of these rice weeds that are growing in our pastures. Then we'll just deal with our usual drought and lack of hay problems and it'll be a normal year you know in my travels uh recently i've talked to some of the uh livestock producers and and these are people who who actually have a combination of let's say they might have a cow calf operation as well as planting corn and soybeans and things like that and and they either lost completely a hundred percent their their corn crop that some of them had corn crop shoulder high, or they were never able the several times they they got soybeans in the ground um they were washed away, and they don't have a soybean crop, so they're taking acreage that is uh you know normally in a in a row crop and turn it into uh a forage crop to help offset uh, some of the hay losses that they're also doing. Are you seeing a lot of that, um, or is that just sporadic? I, I think it's fairly sporadic. Um, you know, same situation with our producers. We had corn. I mean, we're, we're harvesting corn in some places right now, and then, you know, we've got corn that's 
probably not going to be ready for another month. And then we have fields that were planted three and four times in soybeans, and they, you know, hopefully they'll make it before we get a frost. And then we have some fields that are in such bad shape, whether through, you know, erosion or sand piles that they never did get planted. Now, I know east of us, back towards Morrillton and Conway, a lot of the producers did get in some sort of forage crop, whether they're cutting it for silage or haylage or for just straight hay. Um, you know, they're just trying to make some money off the fields and, and hopefully produce something that makes it worthwhile for them. Remind our listeners um, how important it is in the services that county extension offices offer in dealing with um, making sure that pasture land out there is in the best shape it can possibly be in? Well, you know, I mean, it's pasture land, you know, like row crops, there's, there's a lot of basics to it. And, you know, it's basic fertility, basic uh, uh, weed control, and then, you know, whether you're grazing or hay management. And, and if you follow those your basic agronomic principles, you can produce a crop and, you know, do the best job you can. And as extension agents, as the University of Arkansas Division of Ag, we offer those services, you know, to help producers with fertility, pest management, and, and production management. And a lot of times, you know, producers, they know what to do and they just want to be reassured or uh, reminded of the proper way to do it. And, and you know, a lot of us, were, we're all guilty of, of of a quick fix or what seems like a simple idea. And, and, and we offer good research-based information. Kind of sometimes you got to point people in another direction or maybe advise them that their money would be spent or their time would be spent in a better manner as opposed to, you know, some – uh, quick fix idea that may or may not work. He's Blair Griffin, a county extension agent with Johnson County, and there are county extension agents all over the state that our uh, farmers and producers take advantage of uh, their knowledge. And Blair, thank you so much for taking time to be on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. I'm going to, next time you and I meet in a coffee shop, I'm going to bring this pasture weed control publication in a Sharpie so you can autograph it for me on your favorite weeds. We appreciate you visiting with us today. Thank you so much, Blair. All right. Thank you for having me on. Finally, Ken Moore sat down with Arkansas Farm Bureau's chief economist, Travis Justice, to discuss how a late summer fire at a Tyson beef processing plant in Kansas has affected the cattle market, as well as issues affecting overall cattle production in 2019. Travis, uh, thank you for visiting with us here today uh, to talk about uh, how the cattle markets and retail beef prices are being affected by a major fire earlier in August at uh, one of the largest beef processing plants in the country. That uh, plant was destroyed by fire and it has severely impacted uh, cattle prices and retail beef prices in, in different ways, I believe. Talk about, number one, kind of what you know about the fire and how big this plant was and, and why this is having such significant impact on the beef market. Well, the, the plant was located in Kansas, the Tyson Foods plant, and they had a fire that f- didn't totally destroy the plant, but it required them to, 
to close the plant for for a uh, undef- indefinite period of time to get it restored. They do plan to repair and replace and get the plant back in operation, but that's a could be a lengthy process. So, uh, so the plant was a six thousand head capacity uh, plant, so at a major plant. Uh, and it represented about five uh, percent of the U.S. slaughter in that one plant. Wow. So it's a significant impact on the volume of cattle going through there. And what has happened, you know, those cattle are ready to be processed, but the plant's closed. So those cattle are having to be diverted to other plants, sometimes at great distances. And it's going to take several weeks for the industry to sort out the the new logistics for shipping cattle that used to go to this plant that has to be diverted to other plants. Uh, Now, the the packing industry can respond in several ways, or the the, uh, owners of the cattle, felines, you know, they could find new new shackle space, if you will, at other plants. Or other plants that's more conveniently uh, could... uh, put on a Saturday shift or maybe a Sunday shift, add a different shift to, to uh, take care of that uh, backlog of cattle that's been displaced because this packing plant is not available. So uh, it'll take a few weeks for the industry to get a new logistics, if you will, for 6,000 head a day to go somewhere, you know. And in the meantime... Uh, you know, it's created a, a little bit of a gap in that there's 6,000 head a day there for a while. That's not 6,000 head, uh, the, that volume of beef is not available in the beef market, you know, and, or at least the timing is off, delayed in getting that volume of beef uh, in the retail food chain. And so that gap has created a little, uh, some pressure for retail beef prices to go up because the demand is still strong for uh, that's one fortunate thing. We do have a positive beef demand in the country, but when you got a uh, kind of a stoppage of supply for a while here, that has created some pressure for uh, to increase retail beef prices. Now, the increased retail beef prices is the incentive for these packers or for these feedlots, these cattle owners, to find new sources of slaughter, uh, and and then so. Uh, You've got a backlog of cattle, high demand, uh, beef retail beef prices uh, going up some, so it's created a good uh, good margin for these packers. You know, these packers are getting a good margin on the beef that they're selling. Well, that high margin is the incentive to find new supply and uh, get uh, get the, the volume of beef that's ready flowing back into the market and so this disruption in supply because of this plant closure uh you know it's kind of you know put pressure on, on cattle prices going down because of backlog of cattle to be processed at the same time we've had retail beef prices going up because of small short-term shortage of supply right here ahead of the labor day weekend you know mm-hmm. and so uh, it's kind of a unusual situation with retail prices going up and cattle prices going down you know with it uh, but over time uh, the industry will is uh, the incentive is there for them to to find new outlets uh, it may be at a greater expense because we've got to ship cattle further we've got to ship them quicker 
uh, whether and then whether we find that additional solder capacity by local plants putting on extra shifts, or do we have to ship cattle to other regions of the country that might have capacity to, to utilize them? And so I'm sure it'll be a combination of all in order to uh, to get a get the flow of cattle going and the, and the beef supply back into a more stable situation. Here we are, as you just referenced, uh, we're approaching what is, I guess, customarily considered the last grilling holiday of, of the year, Labor Day weekend. And, and the timing couldn't have been worse for uh, consumers, I guess, to see this bump up in retail prices as they're going to get their steaks and burgers. Right. But uh, that will correct itself over time as this supply and uh, uh, works itself out. And uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, but we still have a good, strong demand, and, uh, and consumers have been willing to pay the price. And uh, and uh, we've already seen uh, cattle prices recover. You know, the actual cattle prices took us five to seven dollar hit the day of the fire. You know, and so we've seen cattle prices re- recover at least half of that already. We've seen some no additional pressure to increase retail beef prices uh, so there'll be some softness in the retail beef price market as this goes goes forward so uh, so uh, it'll correct itself it may take several more weeks uh, to do so uh, once we get past the holiday rush then we're in a kind of a low period and so uh, uh, we we hope they the beef supply, the marketing chain gets back to some new stability here and uh, to correct for this uh, uh, this plant disruption. Yeah, well, it just goes to show how an unexpected events like this can uh, significantly impact uh, the, the prices that uh, uh, cattlemen get for their animals as well as uh, the retail prices. You just don't know. Right. Yes, the, uh, of course, it's a, it's a marketing system, and if you have one link in the chain break, uh, it can disrupt the whole system, and uh, we've seen that. But this industry is resilient. There is there is alternatives to correct, and it'll just take a few more weeks for those corrections to happen to offset this unfortunate uh, situation. But uh, the uh, incentives are there for the industry to work toward uh, uh, getting a new stability back in the, in this market. Just one final question, then, kind of an aside from this uh, fire in in Kansas City. Uh, uh, what kind of year has it been for cattle production and beef cattle producers overall? Uh, as we kind of enter into the fall of the year, and and I know they're trying to get another cutting of hay to overwinter and have a hay supply for the winter months. So, what kind of year has 2019 been? I know it's been extremely wet, and we've reported. Uh, you know, on how uh, the wet weather has impacted row crop production, but what about uh, the cattle industry? Well, the cattle industry, as far as price is concerned, has been a fairly good price year. Uh, we had some major hits here. The markets reacted to this plant fire uh, pretty drastically. Uh, yeah, and then there's been some some market uh, reaction to some of the trade issues that's has put pressure on just actual prices here but uh, production wise it's been a very challenging year Uh, uh, a lot of wet weather 
you know, grazing conditions are good. We, we're not certainly not in a drought situation. Uh, grass supplies are good. Grazing conditions are good. Hay production is, uh, has been real iffy be- uh, because of the frequent rains we've had. It's been a challenge to get get hay supplies uh, harvested uh, throughout the year. Uh, uh, and then, of course, you've got a few folks along the river that had some total lo- some major losses due to flood. But uh, overall, it's been a fairly good production year. Challenges on hay because of wet weather. Grazing conditions are good. Price overall prices have been favorable, f- fair and favorable. I wouldn't say exciting, but uh, uh, except for a few blips here that we've seen with some disruptions. Uh, but overall, it's been uh, you know uh, a fairly uh, favorable year for overall cattle production, except for these few uh, uh, challenges. That, and of course, there's always going to be a challenge. But yeah. uh, this year is dodging wet weather for hay. Then you've got trade, and then the plant fire. That's some some keeping pressure on prices, you know. And uh, but uh, been you know demand's good, beef demand's good, the market's strong, the economy is strong, which is favorable to beef demand, favorable to cattle prices, and so the yeah, cattle industry's enjoyed that uh, those benefits as well. All right. Well, Travis, thanks for explaining and kind of clarifying the impacts of this plant fire for us and. Uh, so we get past the Labor Day holiday, hopefully consumers as we go through the fall months will see kind of a leveling out and, you know, uh, a, a better situation in the supermarkets on beef prices. And then, as you say, cattle prices themselves will start to go up, and they already are for our producers. been speaking with Travis Justice. Travis is the uh, uh, chief economist and the coordinator of the Beef Cattle Division for Arkansas Farm Bureau on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's it for this week's Arkansas AgCast. Catch another new episode next Thursday for more expert and farmer interviews and news.